the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme, the Andersonville Irish. Damien Shields on his project to discover the identities of Irish men who fought and died in the American Civil War. Also, in popular culture, Toronto became known as the Belfast of Canada or the Belfast of North America. I mean, the Irish Protestant presence in this city was rather profound from its very founding at the beginning of the 19th century. We visit Canada to explore the Irish emigrant experience in 19th century Toronto and how religious and cultural tensions in the Irish community sometimes boiled over into violence. Plus, family stories of World War II. The Soviets considered some of these slave laborers to be collaborators, even though they had been taken by force from Ukraine. So they were afraid of what might happen to them if they returned to Ukraine. We'll open up a new anthology from NUI Galway, which looks at human experiences during supremely difficult times. Camp Sumter was the largest military prison of the American Civil War. A Confederate prisoner of war camp located near Andersonville, Georgia, 45,000 Union men passed through its gates between February 1864 and May 1865. It was also one of the war's deadliest locations. Thousands died in the overcrowded prison, and among them were hundreds of Irish Americans who are now interred at Andersonville National Cemetery. The Andersonville Irish Project aims to find out exactly who these men were, while also exploring the identity and the history of Irish America. It's an initiative by historian Dr Damien Shields, who joins me now. Damien, you're very welcome to The History Show. Great to be on, Miles. Could you start by giving us a sense of the scale of Irish-American involvement in the Civil War? Yeah, no problem, Miles. It's really, really significant. The analysis that we've been doing recently suggests that in and around 180,000 Irish-born men served the Union, in other words, the US forces during the war. So along with the First World War, it's the biggest conflict in, in kind of modern Irish history in terms of the numbers who served. Because of the way Irish people were emigrating and and the ethnic cohesiveness of the communities of Irish people as well, we can add to that number because we know that in and around probably another 70,000 children who were born outside of Ireland to Irish parents but would have viewed themselves as ethnically Irish served. So what, what we're seeing in the American Civil War is probably in and around a quarter of a million ethnically Irish men going off to the front on the Union side, on the US side. And an awful lot of these guys die Um, And as you were pointing out, Andersonville is such an incredible location because it becomes the deadliest location of all in the Civil War. And so because of the scale of Irish service, we know that there's an awful lot of Irish people who who died there. Um, Give us an idea of how deadly Camp Sumter was. It really was an incredible location. So so it's worth giving a small bit of background. Um, In in the early years of the war, there'd been exchanges. Prisoners had been handed back and forth when they were captured. But that system broke down in the summer of 1863. Uh, One of the major reasons for that was because the Confederates were refusing to treat African-American prisoners as normal prisoners of war. And so as a result, more and more prisoners were, were coming into the system and not going out of it. And the Confederacy was in a 
in, in a bit of a sticky wicket as the, the war was proceeding. Um, there was pressure on them in and around Richmond. They were running out of means to supply their own men, never mind prisoners. And so they were looking for an option in early 1864 where they could send these huge numbers of men. And they, they decided on this incredibly rural location. It's still an incredibly rural location in the southwest of the state of Georgia, where effectively they cut a compound out of, out of the pine woods. And it was an exposed area, a 16 and a half acre site. There was no cover in it. Um, and men just began to funnel in there during that summer, essentially. And it, over that summer, with the extreme weather conditions, with the lack of cover, with the fact that the prison was trying to service over three times the amount of men it was designed to, uh, and there was inadequate rations, men um, were starving in there. It just became this horrific killing ground, if you like, where men were being taken out by dozens every single day to the dead house and buried in the cemetery that eventually would become Andersonville National Cemetery. As you pointed out, nearly 13,000 men. So, so in and around one in four of the men who go through the gates there never come out again alive. Demi, you've come across some incredible material from the period, including some photographs and letters that illustrate the individual human stories of the men who died. We're going to hear an excerpt from a letter in a moment from uh, George Bell. Who was George Bell? George Bell's a really interesting individual because George is one of these men who is not in the United States when the war begins. And this is the type of, of, of information we're getting out of this project. George was actually in Ireland in 1863 when he married a, a woman, Lucy Switzer, who was actually a Palatine um, from Limerick. George himself was from Dublin. And both of them worked in domestic service. But they decided in 1863, like a lot of other people at that time, that their future lay in the United States. And a lot of Irish men in particular were going to the US at this period, specifically with the intent of joining up because there was so much money available for it. And George spends a bit of time in domestic service when they arrive in late 1863, but then enlists in the army in a regiment called the 5th New Hampshire Infantry and goes off to the front, um, but is soon captured, taken to Andersonville and a year after he has landed in the United States, if he'd even been there that long, he's, he dies and is interred in perpetuity in Andersonville National Cemetery. So it's an idea of, of, of you know, some of the most recent immigrants coming from places like Dublin and suddenly finding themselves in, in this hell in Andersonville in southwest Georgia. So this is an excerpt from George Bell's letter to his wife, Lucy. He gives the address Point Lookout, Maryland, and it's dated May 25th, 1864. My dearest Lucy, just a few lines in the greatest of haste to let you know that the regiment is leaving here tomorrow morning at nine o'clock for the front. I trust this will find you and my little son are in good health. I hope you receive my watch safe and my letter that I sent the same time letting you know all about it. If you have wrote to me before this reaches you, I suppose it will be forwarded on to me. So, my dear Lucy, I hope the Lord will spare me. The next time I will hear from my loved one will be on the battlefield. But the Lord is as strong there as here. I hope I may hear from you soon. The thoughts of you and my son will be always in my mind. I send you a small bit of money that was found in the battlefield. I took it from a rebel the other day. Perhaps it may be the last bit of money I ever give you. I always thought the Lord would give the pleasure to see you again, but now I begin to think it is too late. So, may the God of heaven spare and bless you and be my son's guide and keep him from a soldier's fate. That will be the last prayer of your ever-affectionate, though absent, 
husband. An excerpt there from a poignant letter by George Bell to his wife Lucy and George would die at Andersonville on the 11th of September 1864, just a few months after he wrote that letter. Damien, uh, George Bell was from Dublin, but you've identified, I think, men from pretty much every county in Ireland who died in Andersonville. Everyone, Miles, yeah, all 32 counties. We've even identified a couple of the houses they were likely born in in Ireland. All denominations, so there are Irish Catholics from Munster, there are Ulster Presbyterians, uh, Scots-Irish, Irish Protestants. It's all 32 and it's, it's, it's an island-wide experience because so many Irish are, are involved in this conflict. So it's also an enlisted men's prison. So what it's telling us, these are all working class people from across the island. So it's telling us their stories. Um, it's quite remarkable. And it's also showing us how they're spread out across the military. So again, when we're thinking about the Civil War, we have a tendency to think of units like the Irish Brigade, like the 69th New York Infantry, and that's where the Irish served. But so far, we're up to 600 Irish Americans identified, and they served in 210 different units. So it's showing us the ubiquity with the Irish are present in the US service across this period. They're everywhere and they're being taken into Andersonville from all over the front. Um, so really, it is an all-Ireland story and it's one that's affecting all strata. And I can imagine there were a number of Irish speakers, for example, who would have been incarcerated in Andersonville and a number of Irish speakers who would have died there. And there was a kind of a banding together of county men, of people from the same county. Uh, uh, that was the case in particular with four men from Donegal. This is an intriguing story. And one of the things we're trying to pull out of this is how Irish men interacted with each other when they were in places like Andersonville. And the Donegal Irish are a particularly interesting example. So, so one of those men was a guy called Fargal Gallagher, who's actually buried under the name Farragal Gallagher because that was how they heard his name in Gaelic Irish. So we know that there was people speaking Gaelic Irish in the camp. But those four men had all emigrated from different parts of Donegal to Pennsylvania. And that's kind of the key issue here of what we're seeing. They come into Pennsylvania and in Pennsylvania, they seem to have built up a rapport with each other because of where they were from in Ireland. They go into service in different units, but when they arrive in Andersonville, they seem to coalesce again. So these men all have a relationship. And of the four of these Donegal men, three of them die at Andersonville. Um, and one of them walks out of there, a guy called Michael Doherty from Falcara, with the wills of the other men. So he has written down as these men are dying in Andersonville, their last will and testament of how these men would, would give what they had left to their family. Um, and they're really important because one of the men had served under an alias. He'd enlisted under a false name. Um, and so it's given, it's given their families an opportunity to access funds as a result of it. But it's showing us that it's important to these men that they're all from the same place in Ireland, but also that they're all from the same place in America. So we're seeing their, their kind of community identity travelling across the Atlantic and then down to Andersonville as well. And of course, all this is happening just about 15 years after the famine. And you've also looked at the Irish Relief Fund donors who died at Andersonville. Yeah, and, and that's one of the real heartbreaking things about this is that there are plenty of men who die in Andersonville of exactly the same things that they were seeing people die of during the Irish famine. So the Irish Relief Fund donors were guys who gave money in 1863 out of the army and the Navy as well, in an effort to try and stave off a potential famine in Ireland, and their names were recorded. And a number of these men have given money and then a few months later are dying in Andersonville. Uh, we've even come across an incredibly stark 
story of one West Clare man, a guy called Owen Maloney, a young man from Tromra in West Clare. He dies in Andersonville prison. But we know from his files that his father and him had both worked on a famine relief scheme, building a road in a place called Seafield in West Clare. His father had died on that road. Owen had taken his place so that he could keep his mother and siblings out of the local workhouse. They were getting outdoor relief. He eventually saves up enough money to go to the United States, where he ultimately ends up dying of the same thing of his father in West Clare. So it adds this kind of multi-layers element to this of what it must have been like for people who had witnessed those horrors in the 1840s and early 1850s to, to then for them to finally get them, if you like, in, in 1864 in Georgia. Now, the Donegal story is a story of solidarity, but there are other stories, unsavoury ones, uh, relating to the Irish at Andersonville. Tell us about the Andersonville Raiders. Yeah, this is a fascinating story. So these are a group of notorious individuals who preyed on other prisoners within the camp. It was a bit of a lawless camp. And so anybody who came in fresh from a new campaign or had been recently captured, they may have had a lot of money. They may have had um, significant amounts of food and everything. And there were gangs in the camp who preyed on these newcomers in order to get what they had off them. And the most notorious of these groups was a group called the Andersonville Raiders. And eventually the prisoners in the camp actually banded together and got permission from the the Confederate commanding officer at the camp um, to try them, to capture them and to try them. And a number of them were executed um, and buried apart from the other prisoners in the camp. But most of them were Irish American. And there's a very distinct Irish ethnic um, identity to many members of this group. So it starts to raise these questions for us about, you know, how the Irish are in some cases sticking together, in, in other cases not. Some of these men's victims were Irish as well. Um, but also we have to wonder about the things like the prejudice that the Irish are facing and how that's making some of them band together, if you like, against native-born whites, because um, the Irish are facing an awful lot of prejudice within the military at this time as well. So not all the Irish in Andersonville um, were angels by any stretch of the imagination, and not all of them met a good end either. Uh, what about the ages at which some of these people died, or the average age? Generally speaking, how old were the, uh, the, the, the inmates of Andersonville when they died? Yeah, this is one of the really interesting things that's coming out of the project. So the average man who enlisted in the Union Army was in his 20s, usually in their early to mid-20s when they join up. But what we're seeing so far with the 600 men we've identified is that although there are quite a number of young men, our youngest members were 16 who died there, the eldest is in their mid-50s, we're seeing a big spike in 30s and 40-year-old men. So it's showing us a lot of these older men are enlisting at this period. We know that there's a mix at this time of, of early war volunteers, if you like, and people who've enlisted for economic reasons later on, but also that these older men are more susceptible to what's happening in Andersonville. And of course, by the same token, then these are men who are more likely to have witnessed things like the Irish famine and experienced that. But they're older and so they're not able to take the hardships that they're enduring, the lack of food, the exposure, the changes in weather, the extreme heat and cold and things like that, um, is in- impacting them more than it is the younger Irish. Now, you mentioned earlier somebody serving under an alias. Was that unusual? or Why would you join the Union Army under an alias? exceptionally common, particularly among the Irish. And normally it's seen traditionally as, you know, the Irish trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the military, that they're, you know, things like bounty jumpers, guys who are enlisting and trying to run away so they don't want their name tracked. 
And in some cases, that is true. But when you look at the guys in this type of detail, people who died, you're, you see a more complex story emerging. So we have guys throughout the Union military, for example, who enlist under aliases because their father might be an alcoholic and they don't like carrying his name into battle. Or one example, not a man who died in Andersonville, but he enlisted under an alias because his real name was Patrick and he didn't like being called Paddy by the English and by the native-born white Americans who he worked with. And so he enlists under an alias. And so there can be a lot, of, a lot of different reasons for it. Sometimes they were fooled into serving. Sometimes they just distrusted the military and they distrusted a lot of the, the authorities and wanted to kind of keep their options open. And there seems to be a kind of a formula to it as well in, in that the likelihood is in most scenarios that they'll enlist under their mother's maiden name. That's the standard alias that you will get. And of course, later on, if, if they die in a place like Andersonville, if their wives or their mothers are looking to claim a pension, they have to explain why the man who died isn't the same as the man that they were married to or who's uh, their son. So it gives you this really interesting insight into the reason that these men are under aliases. But if they did serve under an alias, it's interesting to note uh, they are buried under their alias at Andersonville. So there are no, no corrections of their names. They, they're interred under the name that they served under. Well, let's talk about interment, because you'd assume that the Confederates would not have stood on ceremony with the 13,000 dead and they would have just buried them in mass graves, which would have made identification very difficult. So how is it possible to identify individuals? We are incredibly fortunate at Andersonville. So they were all taken out on a cart. There were external hospitals as well, just outside the, the barricades. And they were taken to a short distance where they were interred in mass trenches um, and they were laid out. So these trenches were dug um, and they were laid out one after the other in them as they died. Um, and they were buried by other Union prisoners who were working under guard. And the hospitals kept a roll of the men who died, recorded their numbers and had a name beside it. And one of the prisoners who served as a steward in the hospital, one of the US prisoners, brought this list out with him at the end of the war. And he went back there just after the war ended with probably the most famous nurse in American history, a woman called Clara Barton, um, founder of the Red Cross, incredibly famous individual. And they went back together just after the war to go to the wooden markers with the numbers that had been placed on them and to get the names of the men that could be recorded. And so as a result, it's got a very low number. There's a, there's a few hundred of them, but a very low number of unknown, unidentified burials there. And it's quite unusual in that regard from a lot of other national cemeteries from the Civil War. So very, very fortunate that that occurred. Now, obviously, you're making a lot of information available, but you're also looking for information. One part of the project is a call for people to submit any information that they themselves might have. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we're running it as a kind of a, a dual track where we're carrying out our own research and I should note that the Consulate General in Atlanta, the Department of Foreign Affairs there and Andersonville Prison, along with Professor Nicholas Allen of the Wilson um, Centre in University of Georgia, have been incredibly supportive in the research that we've been doing and everything that we're putting out. But we're, we're doing that side of the research and we're calling for people who may have done work on people at Andersonville, who may have a relation, a connection to someone who was there to submit people to us and everybody who submits anybody who's identified gets acknowledged on the site we have two forms of mapping that are freely available we're creating a map that you can visit on the website of anyone who is identified to county level or lower in ireland so from townlands through to county and we're physically mapping them on a map of ireland and you can explore your county and find out who there is in andersonville 
and also we're creating a global um, database of all the people that we've identified so there are 600 on that now but people can submit um, we have a, a gmail account so andersonvilleirish at gmail.com and if they have any contributions to make we'd be very keen to have them well, the Andersonville Irish Project, it's a long-term project to find out as much as possible about these men. It's also a partnership, as you heard Damien say there, with the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Irish Consulate in Atlanta. You can find more on Damien's website, irishamericancivilwar.com, where all of his research, um, incredible research, and all his projects live. Dr. Damien Shields, many thanks indeed for joining us. Thanks, Miles. The History Show with Miles Dungan on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Now we're going to visit Canada, a country which saw a huge influx of Irish immigrants in the 19th century, peaking during the famine years. Among the large Irish community in the city of Toronto, there were religious tensions. Violence broke out on many occasions between those who identified with the Orange Order and Catholics whose loyalties did not lie with the British Empire. Mark McManaman has been finding out more. The story of the Irish in Canada is both rich and complex. With considerable immigration even prior to the famine, a rich and diverse Irish community developed in Canada. One of the things that many people will be astonished by is that the famine migration to British North America, of which Canada was a part in 1846 through to 52, was really the high point of Irish migration. Um, almost 450,000 Irish people migrated to British North America prior to 1846, which is a shock to many. This is Professor Mark McGowan of the University of Toronto an expert on the history of the Irish in Canada in the years up to and including the famine. So there was already a well-established Irish presence here so that those who came in 1847 and about 110,000 Irish left UK ports at that time, you know, would have been welcomed by communities in which there would have been a very significant Irish presence. Most Irish find work as labourers, but there were often tensions between people over work. This was due to where they hailed from in Ireland, as well as for religious reasons, as Mark explains. What you have during the famine is you have all of these counties with people trying to get out of Ireland, some assisted and some most by their own means. And so you've got this really interesting mix of, uh, you know, Munstermen and Connachtmen, you know, uh, working on the Welland Canal and not fighting with Protestants, actually fighting with one another for jobs, you know, during and after the famine. Such divisions were particularly acute in Canada's largest city, Toronto. As these Irish Catholics start to arrive, especially in the 1840s and 1850s, they're kind of designated down into the, the working class, the day labourers. This is Canadian historian Jared Ross, a native of Toronto. And so in these, you have these ethnic, religious, even class tensions all emerging in Toronto in the 1850s and 60s. And you get some sizable disturbances, riots sectarian tension due to this blend. Very often, religious tensions were brought by immigrants to Canada. Toronto, for example, soon became dominated by the Orange Order and by Ulster Protestant immigrants. In popular culture, Toronto became known as the Belfast of Canada or the Belfast of North America. I mean, um, the Irish Protestant presence in the city was rather profound from, from its very founding at the beginning of the 19th century. And there were times in the mid to late 19th century and early into the 20th century where 
The Orange Lodge actually dominated not only City Hall and the mayor's chair of the city, but also the fire department had a huge influence in the police department. So it was very difficult at times for Irish Catholics, for example, or any Catholics to sort of uh, have some sort of upward mobility in local government. The dominance of the Orange Order in Toronto often led to flashpoints and violence, with the infamous Jubilee riots becoming one of the most bloody events in the city's history. In 1875, the Pope celebrated a jubilee and he offered an indulgence to those who paraded from church to church within a city. Well, in Toronto in 1875, it was tried twice and the second time it it turned into a major riot, the jubilee riots in the city. Um, And what's interesting there, though, is it's not as binary as what we think because the police department actually formed a human chain, uh, mostly a Protestant police department formed a human chain to keep the orange lads away from, you know, attacking. Attacking uh, the Catholic pilgrims, men, women, and children. Parades continued to be flashpoints between the various ethnic Irish groups within the city for many years after the Jubilee riots. And of course, both St. Patrick's Day and the procession on the 12th of July, the Orange Orders Parade, were both occasionally banned because there were continued civil disturbances, the most noticeable being uh, the Jubilee riots in 1875 and another one riot in 1878. They weren't always around the 12th of July or St. Patrick's Day, but that was a continued, those were continued flashpoints for tension. While St. Patrick's Day wasn't banned outright, Irish Catholics found less confrontational ways to express their Irishness in Toronto throughout much of the next century. Uh, the parade had kind of lost its luster by the 1870s. And I think what St. Patrick's Day up until very recently, 1988 was the first of the contemporary parades in the city, mostly, you know, conducted by Irish expats who were living in Toronto. Uh, But in the interim, you had, you know, dinners, uh, concerts, uh, theatrical productions, and religious services that really marked St. Patrick's Day in the city. According to Jared, a sense of a shared Canadian identity began to take hold in Toronto amongst the Irish and has in turn helped play its part in making Canada the diverse, vibrant country that it is today. An Irish Catholic Canadian started to say, well, what about a new Canadian identity? Well, we can take pride on being Canadian without some of this baggage or this association with Britain. And it's something that I think Irish Canadians should should think about and, and, and really, it may not be well known, but really take pride in. That was Mark McMenamin reporting there on the Irish in Canada and why the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Toronto was a poorly attended event for about 100 years. After the break, we'll be looking at some family stories of World War II collected in a new anthology from staff members at NUI Galway. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. We're going to open up a book now which looks at human experiences during supremely difficult times. A new anthology collects wartime stories from academics at NUI Galway. It covers a range of stories from across Europe that illustrate the human impact of the Second World War and what those experiences mean to subsequent generations. The book is called Family Histories of World War II, Survivors and Descendants. It's published by Bloomsbury Academic and I'm joined now by the editors of the anthology 
Anthology. Dr. Roisin Healy and Dr. Garoj Barry are both historians at NUI Galway, specialists in modern Germany and in uh, France, respectively. And Roisin, it's a it's a truly international publication, uh, touching on a lot of countries across Europe and also the the USA. How did it come about? Well, the idea came about really in 2019 as the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II was approaching. And I had been involved in another book on family memory dealing with the Irish Revolution a couple of years before that. And it struck me that it was a model that could be rolled out for World War II as well asking people across the university to contribute family histories that they had collected themselves of World War II. And myself and my colleague Gareth, as you said, are European historians, so we're in the classroom every day talking about the war and we thought it would be great to get some individual stories, how the the war impacted on individuals and their families, as opposed to the, the sort of the macro picture that we often end up telling in the classroom. Garage, the book is divided into two parts. Part one is Lives in Uniform, Enduring Combat and Captivity, obviously dealing with those who were personally involved uh, on the sharp end of the war, the fighting. Part two is Lives Under Siege, Coping with Occupation. But you found a real wealth, and this is one of the, the really astonishing things for me anyway about the book, a real variety of stories just by asking staff in NUI Galway, a very, very small sample indeed. And I suppose it shows how many stories are out there just under our noses. Absolutely, Miles, uh, you're quite right. I suppose it's also a testament as well to the diversity and the multinational nature in general of our, of our campus that all these stories were out there, including, of course, uh, not by any means disregarding stories coming from Irish people as well. When we kind of took up this stone and all these wonderful things came out and and came towards us, we were actually put in the difficult position of actually having to make choices. Um, There were more stories than this came to us, but the choices we made, as you say there, citing the section uh, headings, was on the basis of representativity to show something of the diversity of experience of those who were fighting and those who were affected by fighting in their civilian capacity as well. Now, some of the stories, as you would imagine, are quite dark, quite hard to read. But uh, Roisin, the story of Maureen Maloney of uh, NUI Gobi and her sister Colleen Maloney-Williamson, perhaps one of the less dark stories, uh, share that story with us about the wartime adventures of their father. Yeah, that's certainly a very uplifting story. So it deals with their father, Thomas Joyce Maloney, who was an American who enlisted in the Air Corps when he was just 18. And he ended up fighting in Europe in at the very end of the war in 1945. And he had to parachute out of a plane in northern Italy in January 1945. And he ended up being in the in the Alps on his own in the snow for a couple of days, really at the end of his wits, when a couple of uh, local Italians, two cousins, discovered him. And they and their broader families basically protected him for the rest of the war for another three months until the Americans came in and, and found him and, of course, were full of joy to, to find him. So the American then, Joyce, Thomas Joyce Maloney, returned to America and spent many decades there, got married, had five children, really didn't talk very much about the war until one day they got a phone call from this Italian woman who was at a wedding nearby. 
and she said uh, she was was had asked a friend to, to to find this Maloney in Pittsburgh, and so they were reunited. And then Thomas Maloney returned with his wife to the village of Condino in northern Italy, where the villagers had uh, had protected him during the war. And they gave him a fabulous reception. The mayor, the whole town was out to welcome him because they were so proud of the of the, 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 the work that they had done to protect him from the Germans at great personal cost to themselves. But the story doesn't end there because Maloney died then in 2010 and the, the children felt that they wanted to find out even more about his experiences there. And they decided the five siblings to make a visit to Condino, Italy and essentially had the same experience as as their parents going over, being given a civic reception, being shown a film about the episode during the war. And it was an enormously meaningful experience for them all as they reunited with the people who had protected their father. And Garage English lecturer in NUIG, Irina Rupo, wrote about her Russian Jewish grandmothers. Tell me their story, if you would. Uh, yes, indeed, Miles. As we know, during the 900 or so day siege of Leningrad uh, between uh, late 1941 and early 1944, about an estimated 1.5 million people died of hunger. And living there in the, that first awful winter were uh, Lucia and Raya Greenberg, who were the sisters and also the grandmothers of our colleague uh, Irina Ruppo. And uh, the mainstay of Arena's uh, chapter is based on a memoir which her granny Raya wrote later in the 1990s, living in Israel as a resettled member of Russia's Jewish community um, living in Israel. And there in her memoir, she provides a very vivid description of the war coming to Leningraders and of the privations of that first uh, winter in which their own mother and their grandmother went to extraordinary lengths to uh, protect them, gathering food, sunflower seed peels, eating your food crumb by crumb, so short was it. And then the confrontation that starts off as a bit of a lark, uh, with even air raids regarded as a bit of excitement by the children, becoming dreadfully serious with, you know, the grandmother's uh, body when she dies, being brought down and left outside to be carried away to a a communal grave. And really, the children and their their mother do manage to get out of the city in the spring of 1942 and then face a dreadful journey across the frozen wastes of the Soviet Union to Siberia. And at one stage, the grandmother comments that there are more good people than bad in the world because it is really the kindness of a random stranger that allows them to, to survive and helps the grandmother, Rhea, to regain her strength and regain the ability to walk. And then they're finally welcomed in Siberia by a cousin, uh, Sima, who kneels before them uh, as representatives of the martyred city of uh, Leningrad. And so what what you see in this really is a story that continues to have meaning for a family that dispersed throughout the world, but also a family that suffers great tragedy after this. Uh, For the grandmothers and their families, the privations of the Leningrad siege had a long-term implication for the family. And indeed, in the case of one of the grandmothers, Lucia, she died in 2008 of complications brought on by chronic under-eating, so that it's evident that the siege and the experience during the war of the Greenberg sisters had long-term implications for their health and well-being. And Garage, 
in a warmer but also tragic theatre of war. That's Greece. One of the chapters is a Greek tragedy, small, a small village at uh, a war. Tell us about that small community in Greece. This is another very vivid contribution. It's one of two in the book, actually, at least two that relate to experiences of occupation and resistance. And in the village of Platistomo in central Greece, our colleague Dinas, who Dinas Eftimu, who works as a chemist in NUI Galway, um, his parents live in that village. His father is a 20-year-old who is recruited into ELAS, the communist resistance organisation. And his mother, Eleni, who is still living, uh, is a young girl who witnesses multiple occupations of their region, first by Italians, a relatively benign occupation, and then a much more brutal and fear-filled one by the German Wehrmacht from spring 1942 on in, in their region. And of course, about 45,000 hostages, civilian hostages are shot by the Germans in Greece during the occupation. Uh, and some of that takes place in uh, Dinas's uh, region, in which you have partisan activity, You have areas in the mountains which are controlled to some degree by the communist partisans who then come down, stage attacks on the on the Germans, for which there is terrible retribution, including a moment when the villagers have to escape up into the hills. And some of the elderly people who are left in the village, including an elderly priest, are literally shot in their beds. So it's a story of uh, local uh, resistance and determination. And there are some uh, kind of prominent local figures as well who become uh, folk heroes in the resistance, both male and female. But at the end of the war, it's also tinged with sadness because, of course, this wasn't the end of conflict uh, in Greece. You have a civil war coming after that. And of course, the other thing to mention very poignantly is that you have the execution of some of the local German occupiers. But then uh, that's followed years later by the return visit of a son of one of these German officers who comes in a spirit of peace and who is greeted quite peaceably by the local population in spite of what had been a very brutal period. So uh, Dinas likes to end on a message of hope that his village is part of the wider story of European reconciliation after the Second World War as well. Roisin, Sylvie Mosse is a modern foreign language teacher originally from Belgium, but she looks at the experiences of her maternal grandparents. They're from Ukraine. That's right. Um, Sylvie's mother's parents came from Ukraine and had a particularly difficult experience during World War II and also afterwards. They were both taken separately as slave labourers to the Reich in 1942. So just two out of 12 million that were taken from all over Europe to work in Germany on farms and in factories. And they were treated abominably. Sylvie's grandmother, Alexandra, describes having very little to eat and having to literally eat the scraps laid out for the dogs. Her grandfather was slightly better off and, in fact, in a great act of love, gave her some of his own rations, uh, even though he too had, had very little. They then found themselves at the end of the war in a bit of a dilemma because they were afraid to return to Ukraine As bizarre as it sounds, the Soviets considered some of these slave labourers to be collaborators, even though they had been taken by force from Ukraine. So they were afraid of what might happen to them if they returned to Ukraine. 
So they decided then to go to a DP camp in Germany and from there they went on to Belgium. And in fact, Sylvie Massé's mother was born in that DP camp in 1946. What's particularly difficult about this story is the fact that both parents, both Alexandra and her husband Vasily, had left families back in Ukraine. So she had left a daughter. She had been widowed. She'd also lost another daughter. Um, but she lo- left a daughter of just six years of age in Ukraine when she was sent to Germany. And Vasil also left um, a wife and, and, and two sons. The, the wife subsequently died. And they continued on to Belgium then after the war with their their new daughter and made a life there for themselves. It was a very hard life. Um, Vassil was part of a programme that brought in refugees to work in the mines in Belgium, but was very stoic about it. And the author, Sylvie Massé, then was the product of the marriage of their daughter, Anna, and a Belgian man. And she grew up in this Ukrainian community in Belgium, hearing the stories from her grandmother. And the grandmother tried again and again to get access to the daughter she had abandoned in Ukraine, tried to get access to a visa to get back into Ukraine to visit her. And for 30 years, she wasn't able to do that. And only in 1972 did the Ukrainian authorities finally relent and allow her visit. And that was, in fact, the only time she saw her her daughter. Her daughter had managed to, to survive, obviously, originally being looked after by uh, by relatives and then in, in a foster home. So it was a very emotional reunion for them. And then Alexandra wasn't permitted ever again to uh, to visit her daughter. So that legacy of the war lasted then for, for decades afterwards. And Sylvie herself describes visiting her, her aunt, uh, her step-aunt, in Ukraine in 1986, um, at a time when the Berlin Wall still existed, there was still an Iron Curtain and spending four hours at the border um, having the car checked before she could go and visit her relations. So the, the relations between the family in Belgium and Ukraine were preserved, but under very difficult circumstances. In Garage, another of your colleagues, Marina Ansaldo, talks about her Italian grandfather's experience in captivity. Tell us something about his story. Yes, indeed. And Marina Ansaldo's grandfather uh, was Marcello Cancellieri, whom she remembered as a benign and uh, loving uh, grandfather. But he, he had overcome terrible times during the war. Um, he was one of about 700,000 uh, Italian soldiers uh, who ended up effectively abandoned by their own government when the Italian government, king and government, deposed Mussolini in uh, 1943 and effectively switched sides. And as a result of this, the Germans were able to arrest, basically, uh, and take captive a whole load of of Italian soldiers who were left without clear orders. And we we get a very vivid description of a kind of an ill-fated last stand by Consiglieri and his fellow soldiers. He was an officer in the Alpini, the elite mountain unit of the Italian army who were located in Bolzano uh, near the border with, well, the German uh, Reich at that moment when the Germans came in. Really, what's very interesting about it is we've heard a lot in relation to Ireland in 1922 to the importance of oaths and how people took it so seriously, perhaps more seriously than people do nowadays. And uh, really, most of these men refuse the opportunities that are given to them repeatedly, both in Italy when they're taken in captive, but also in terrible, awful 
prison camps afterwards from Poland to Germany, um, he and his comrades are given the chance to simply switch sides and to join the army of Mussolini's kind of continuity fascist regime, uh, German puppet, uh, the Salo Republic. And like most of his comrades, he refuses. And he says something quite interesting. He says, they cannot release us from an oath with a couple of words. And because of that feeling of personal honour and because of the fact that he had taken an oath, which he must abide by to the king and, and government of Italy, for two years or more, he and many others suffered terrible privations. They did show resilience. They did put aside some of their very meagre rations uh, to try and make an improvised Christmas cake, for example, in 1942 in the most dreadful circumstances. And also they refused a lot of food aid from outside agencies such as the Red Cross and the Vatican precisely because the Germans say that they are military internees, that their government had left them without a clear designation in terms of international law. And when they come back, uh, the men are really a national embarrassment for many people in Italy because of the way that the Italian armistice of 1943 had been mishandled. And it's, it's only now beginning to get uh, recognition. The other important thing as well is that these family stories, as well as their content, they're often meant to convey a moral meaning. And in the case of Marcello, it was to convey a sense of the importance of mental resilience to his own daughter, who was having a tough time in the 1970s when he wrote up his memoir on the basis of the notes that he had often written on wartime cigarette paper. And so he says in his memoir that no matter how bad things were physically and they were very bad, it was those who lost the spirit and lost the will that they were the ones who didn't come back to Italy. And so he's appealing to his daughter to similarly kind of reinvest in life and to take heart at that point in time. And so to the present day, the canteen, the decorated canteen decorated by fellow internees, which Consigliere had, remains a, a prized family possession for the Ansaldo family. And it, it's a beautiful object, which uh, we were lucky enough to reproduce as a photograph in the book, bearing the names of the uh, half dozen or so camps across central Europe where Consigliere was a prisoner. Roisin, finally, an Irish story. Kira Boylan uh, has a PhD in history and teaches in Galway. She writes about her grandfather's service in the British Army. I think she was uh, slightly ambiguous about it when she began all of this. That's right. It's one of about three stories in the book that deal with Irish people in uh, the British Army during World War Two, which, of course, has long been a kind of a contentious theme that, that the Irish service in the British Army in both World One and, and Two. He ended up joining the British Dental Corps in 1937, just after he qualified as a, as a dentist in Ireland. And he went to various different theatres. He spent a lot of time in the Middle East and North Africa. He was working really in the POW camps, so people who were captured by the British. And he was examining those and also British soldiers themselves, um, making sure that they were fit for service. He also spent time in France and Belgium towards the end of the war. 
And in fact, one of the most interesting things that he did was he was called back to Europe after the end of the war to go to the Bergen-Belsen camp to help identify or at least assess the number of deaths there on the basis of dental records, literally looking at teeth extracted from uh, the ovens in Bergen-Belsen. So he had a he had a very interesting war and then he returned to Ireland and he wasn't at all ambiguous about his experience during the war. He was quite proud of it. But I think for many people, there was a sense of of shame around it. Um, About 60,000 Irish people served in the British Army during World War II. And Kira herself felt a little embarrassed by it, that in some sense he wasn't fully Irish. He never felt that way. He was able to reconcile the two identities very easily and in fact said that the British Army treated him quite well and allowed him acknowledge his Irishness. And then later she went on to, to study history and indeed do a PhD in, in history in Oxford and was later working as part of the World War I Family History Roadshow um, on behalf of the National Library in 2012. And she met lots of Irish people who had memorabilia from ancestors who had served with the British Army in World War I. And she describes in the chapter how she then realised what a common experience it was and that it wasn't something that was un-Irish. In fact, it was representative of one strand of of, uh, Irish experiences in in the 20th century and came to understand that, that it was indeed very feasible to reconcile Irish identity and service in the, in the British Army. Um, but it's, it's an interesting chapter in other ways too because we have this idea of war as being always horrific and in many ways it was and he experienced some terrible things but he also experienced moments of, of joy and leisure even. He describes duck shooting on the Nile and playing golf in Alexandria, swimming in the Suez Canal. Not not things that we would associate with the war, but opportunities that were there for people at certain moments in the war when things were quiet. So it's a very interesting story on lots of different levels. Well, this publication covers 13 stories altogether. We've touched on half a dozen or so of them this evening. The book, once again, is called Family Histories of World War II, Survivors and Descendants. It's published by Bloomsbury Academic. My guests are the editors, Dr. Roisin Healy and Dr. Garroge Barry. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us on The History Show this evening. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Tommy O'Sullivan on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.